sermon text is Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 977. Hear the word of the Lord. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility, humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me this morning? Speak now, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This past week, the website YouGov.com released results from a recent poll that they conducted. They asked 1,500 adult U.S. citizens this question. How trustworthy do you rate the news reported by the following media organizations? These responders were then asked, here's a list of 56 different news sources, news outlets, and they were asked to to, to rate these news outlets based on their perceived trustworthiness. Now, as you can imagine, there were some pretty divergent views, and that's kind of the point of the poll. It was trying to show how divergent the views were on media trustworthiness are and how it's changed over the course of years, and this is based especially in what political party you affiliate with. And in fact, there was only one media organization, one bipartisan gem hidden among them all. Any guesses? The Weather Channel, the Weather Channel, bringing people together still, but only barely because it actually didn't score 100% in trustworthiness, so the jury is still out even there. Living in a relatively fractured society as we do, we, I, I, you can read and go to that article, I expected those results. You kind of know what you're going to get when you pull up the article to begin with. But one of the dangers, the things that can happen if we are not careful, is that the disunity that we see and we expect and find among your neighbors and your coworkers and the world around us, we can just kind of assume that that kind of disunity is inevitable. Maybe even that it's normal and natural inside the church. But that should not be the case. The inclination and the intention of God's people united together in Christ should not be toward disunity or toward dissolution. We are leaning in and leaning towards divine, blood-bought unity in Christ. And I hope that we see that come out in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 this morning. 
the main point of the passage there on your notes, as God's church, as God's church, we should strive to display and promote the unity that we have. As God's church, we should strive to promote and display the unity that we actually have. You can find the outline there on the note sheet. We'll spend our time together. We'll do just a brief kind of intro into Ephesians chapter 4 through 6, but spend most of our time looking at the foundation for our unity, and then the enemies of this unity, and then friends, the virtues that we find of this unity. My prayer for us has been based this week out of Ephesians 4, 3, that we would be zealous. We would desire and work with everything in us. To maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace for our joy as a church and as a people and ultimately for God's glory as people look in at us that they would see the union of Christ and the unity of God even here. Now, as we turn to Ephesians chapter four, we've made it to the halfway point of the book. And for the first three chapters, for chapters one through three, Paul has over and over and over again just reveled in the glory of what God has done for us and who we are in Christ. He's just said that over and over. So in broad strokes, he said there, this is who you are. Ephesians one through three, know who you are, church, in Christ. And then as he turns the page into chapter four, he tells us, because this is who you are, now live like this. This is what it looks to live like, this kind of people. So chapters one through three, who you are, four through six, flows out of that. Who you are impacts what you do and how you live. And I hope you see even here in the structure of the book that it is teaching us something. The structure of the book is teaching us how we are made right with God. What comes first? Is it the good works, the things that you do to be made right? Or who, what God has done and declares that he has done? And the structure will answer that question for us. What God has done comes first. You are not made right because of what you do. The structure is just really teaching what Paul says explicitly in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. If you have your Bible open, just look, maybe flip back a page and look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. There he just, he says this, this is the explicit teaching that he's reinforcing in the structure we see here. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's chapters 1 through 3, saved by grace through faith. Now you're a new creation. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's chapters four through six saved and now walking in that. And kids here with us, teens, even who are listening to this, this is so important. This is easy for adults to forget, but maybe it's even harder for kids and teens to get right. This was hard for me to understand as a, as a teenager or as a kid. Just because I was told over and over, my parents wanted me to be loving and kind and compassionate. And that's good. We want that. At my house, we sing a song out of Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another. Be kind to one another. Like we sing that a lot because we just need to remind each other of that a lot. And we, we want you as parents. That's a good thing. But we don't want you to be confused. I don't want you to be confused that the way to become a Christian is to be kind to your brother or your sister. 
You do all these good things, and if you do them enough and consistently enough, all of a sudden you have a, a new heart in Christ. What, what Ephesians has told us is that we are made right by Jesus dying for us and trusting in him and be given new life in him. And then because we are that kind of person, then we are walking in the way that we're going to look at in the next few, cha- uh, the next few weeks in these three chapters. Now, the, the first verse in our passage today, Ephesians 4.1, this is like, uh, if you've ever written an essay, this is like a topic sentence or a thesis for all of chapters 4 through 6. I think this is the thesis of what's going on. So look at Ephesians 4.1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Okay, so we've been called, we've been saved Now walk in the way that is worth that salvation, that demonstrates the value of who you are and how you have been saved. A manner that is worthy of that great salvation we have in Christ. And Paul is going to spend these chapters talking about kind of different areas of life and different people that we interact with. And he begins with looking at our relationships with those in his church. So we're going to be looking at today and even next week as well. And normally I, I like to kind of, when, when we walk through a passage, I like to start at the beginning and just work through and show how this works out in the passage. But today I want to kind of jump to the end uh, and look at the foundation for our unity. I want to begin there in verses four through six. And I want to, I want to do that because unity in and of itself can be a good thing, but unity can also be a bad thing. Okay, unity is not just this new, is not an always good. Okay, if you think about a, a group of doctors. Uh, my mom was in the hospital several months ago. Uh, we were praying, thank you for praying for mom as a church. And, and we had, we would go and I met with a nephrologist and a cardiologist and a hospitalist and an intensivist and like all of these doctors. And they were, their job, their, they were unified around trying to find what was going on with my mom. But I was like, I was glad for that kind of unity of working together and being founded and working towards healing and wholeness. But you can also think about, uh, maybe you've seen the movie Ocean's Eleven. It's like a group of thieves who come together and like say, hey, you've got this skill and I've got this skill. Let's get together. And if we all unify together, then we can make it big, make one big theft. That's a bad kind of unity, right? It's still unity, but unity in and of itself is not always good. Unity depends upon what the foundation of that unity is and what the goal of that unity is. So I want us to start here at Ephesians 4-6 through 6 and listen to this and ask the question of what is the foundation of Christian unity? What kind of unity ought we have in the church? So listen to verses 4-6 through 6 together. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You'd obviously hear in there just kind of the steady drumbeat. One, 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 one. Paul is wanting to say very clearly, uh, he says these seven things, the things that unite us in Christ, in the gospel as Christians, those things are greater and stronger than the things that are going to divide us. Far greater. And you can think about these factors of unity along three broad categories. I found this in a commentary by Frank Thielman. I thought this was helpful. So three broad categories if you want to think about what Paul is saying we are unified around. 
First, we have unity as God's people. We have unity as God's people. And we see that in the first thing in this list. We are unified as one body. That body is clearly the church. Paul has used that language before in Ephesians. He uses it elsewhere in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. In the image of a body, Paul uses this especially in a place like 1 Corinthians 12. And this is why I think he even uses it here. The, The image of a body requires a kind of unity. Being a body, think about your physical body. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul uses this metaphor and says, isn't it just ridiculous for a head to look at a hand and say, I have no need of you. Or to look at a foot and say, I'm really good, I can get along just fine. No, Paul says that's ridiculous. As members of one body, there is unity. And for you to look around, for us to look around and say, you know, I actually think I'm the part that holds this all together, and therefore I don't need this part, is not what God tells us is true of us as a church. So we're one body. We're united as God's people in this one body. And actually we'll look at this even more next week as we talk about different members of the body. Beyond one body, we also share one faith. We're united around one faith. And that word faith can be used in a few different ways. But here it's a reference to the object of the truths that we base our belief on. The things that we as Christians confess together. Uh, we use this word faith, you kind of use it when you say, uh, so our statement of faith uh, is the Baptist faith and message. So that's that's the, the statement of what we believe the Bible is teaching us. That's what this Paul is using, this word faith. We have one faith and it reminds us that God has revealed in his word who he is, who we are, what Christ has done for us, what happens now that we are in this faith. And that faith is what we unite around. That's one reason why we read earlier the Nicene Creed, a statement for, that's for the past nearly 1,700 years, Christians have said, this is a good summary of the faith. It's not the Bible itself. We would not hold it up to that level. We would say, this is a summary of what we believe. So we have unity as part of God's people. If you belong to God, you belong to his people. But ultimately, that unity has even deeper roots Okay, the, the unity that we are told we have here, its roots sink down even farther. Because our, our unity as a body, as a church, are actually meant to be a reflection of the unity that we see in the triune God himself. Paul says we have unity in the triune God. He says that there is one spirit. And by having one spirit, he says that, that's just a sign that you are one people. So remember the story in Acts chapter 10? This is maybe where you see this most clearly. In Acts chapter 10, there's a man named Cornelius. He's a Roman centurion. He's a God-fearing man. And he calls to Peter, a Jewish uh, disciple. And he, Peter comes into, into Cornelius' house and he begins teaching the gospel. And then as Peter looks, everyone who hears and who is listening, what happens next is that the Holy Spirit falls upon Cornelius and all those who hear the word. And Peter's response is, how can we not baptize these people? They have the same spirit. That is the thing that has united us. And it opened Peter's eyes even to say, if they have the spirit and I have the spirit, then we're one person. There's no more division here. We have one spirit knitting us together into the one body of Christ. 
And just as there is one spirit, there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. We bow to one master. Even if you take the name Christian upon yourself, the name Christ is in there and it's there for a reason. We, we bear even in our own identity that Christ is the one who is uniting us together. And then this confession culminates in saying we have one God and Father of all who is over all things, showing his sovereignty. He's working through all things, displaying his power. And he's in all places, showing his omnipresence. He is in all places. So with all, all Christians throughout the age, we confess that we worship one God in three persons. The Trinity is not something that just like theologians decided would be a fun kind of gimmick several hundred years after the Bible. The Trinity is here. It's laid out for us. We believe in one God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. And then here in the doctrine of the Trinity, here I think is where we find the greatest theological argument. Why is it that we should be united? The greatest theological argument for our unity in the church is found in God, who is three in one. And Paul may be implying that here, but he's implying that because Jesus himself explicitly taught this. So think back to John 17. It's the high priestly prayer. It's the the last prayer that Jesus prays with and for his disciples in the book of John before he is crucified. And it's there on your note sheet, just a, a little sliver of it so you can see this. In John 17, 20 through 23, this is what Jesus prays. I do not ask for these only, for his disciples. I'm not just asking for them, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, which is you and me and every other Christian who has believed down through the ages. I'm asking, verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Uh, Clinton Arnold, who's a New Testament scholar, he put it this way. This unity in the church that Paul is talking, talking about, this unity is possible and it's essential. Because it represents an extension of Jesus' own unity with the Father. Friends, our unity as a church, the unity that we are meant to display and have, it matters because we are meant to be a display of the glory of the triune God. And if that's the case, then our unity doesn't just matter because I say so, or because it's much nicer to live in a unified church. I say, I say this because God, because Jesus has prayed for his, the unity of his church. Jesus has prayed for this. It matters not ultimately to us, but to God that his church live unified. Our unity then extends from God himself and it goes into our response to this God. So we have unity in our response to God. We say we have one hope that belongs to our call. We've been called to embrace salvation, to hope in Christ, to place our hope there. And our hope even looks forward. We share the same future hope. That there's coming a day when we will stand with Christ together. And we also confess we have one baptism. Uh, for, For those who are in Christ, there is a prescribed way that we are meant to picture and to demonstrate our belonging to Christ. 
Uh, if you would do me a favor, so I have asked for like kid participation. Uh, this morning I'm asking for members of Philadelphia Baptist Church. Just this is the participation portion of the sermon. Uh, if you would help me in picturing this. So if you're a member of Philadelphia Baptist Church and you were in core training this morning, would you raise your hand? Okay, great. If you, you can put it down, if you are a member of Philadelphia Baptist Church and you've been a member for longer than 15 years, would you raise your hand? Great. Thank you. Put your hand down. If you're a member of Philadelphia Baptist Church and you have been baptized, would you raise your hand? Okay. Thank you. You can put them down. There is one prescribed way that Jesus has given us to show we belong and we've responded. And while we love, like I love core training, I'm glad for it. That's, that's not the way that we say we're all unified because we're going to get behind this one church program we're going to do. It's a good thing to belong to a church for a long time. I'm, I'm grateful, thankful for the many of you who have been here for so long. But the one way that Jesus in his flesh, what he told us where we find, uh, the, we picture this unity is being baptized. And just to be clear, this is not what saves you. Baptism is not the thing that saves you and makes you a Christian. So I could, I could give you my wedding band. Uh, I'd be in major trouble if I gave you my wedding band. But if I gave it to you, that would not make you married to Laura. Right? I'm married to Laura whether I lose this or give it to somebody else. I'm married to Laura because I took vows. And that's, that's what has done that thing. In the same way, baptism is not the thing that saves you. It is the sign of reality already embraced. That you've been unified with Christ. That you've been buried with him and have raised to walk in new life. You've been baptized into his spirit. And these seven elements of unity that Paul points out, I hope you feel just kind of the overwhelming truth. Those of you who are in Christ, those of you who have placed your faith in him, we have unity. We have unity. The basis for our unity is as strong as God himself. So when Paul is saying that we should walk in a manner that's worthy of this, he is just telling us, act like who you already are. It's like looking at your kids and be like, you're an Adams. Act like it. Act like who you are. You have unity in Christ. Walk in it. We have unity. Walk in it. If only it were just that simple. That goes to point number two in the enemies of unity. Unity among God's people is a hard-fought battle. I'm sure you can think of a variety of ways that unity can be torn asunder. I have listed a few here that uh, just to think about off, off my head and thinking through scripture and what this passage teaches us. But unity is, is not something that is prized by the world around us, and we need to be careful to prize it ourselves. But a few enemies of unity. I'll start with one. This is one that probably doesn't just like jump to the front of your mind if you, if you're thinking about it, but this is what I'm calling false foundations for unity. Okay, false foundations. That's why we began kind of where we did. What are we united around? We wanted to answer that question. What's the bedrock? Uh, Philadelphia Baptist Church, what's the bedrock of our unity in Christ? And it's we believe in this triune God and in what he has done. We believe in this faith once for all delivered to the saints. But what happens if you put other things at that foundation or you change up that foundation in some ways? How does that shape our unity? And here we can think of kind of two scenarios that I think look if you if you're looking at them from the outside, they look like very different things. But in the end, they, they end up kind of doing the same thing. They end up building 
dividing walls and making false foundations, false unity. So in one scenario, think about somebody who's adding something to this foundation. Some other non-biblical or perhaps even anti-biblical feature that a church says, you know, we're going to unite around this plus some other stuff. You don't have to go too far back in history where you can see examples of this in even our own communities where you said we need to confess to the faith once we're all delivered to the saints and to belong to this body, you have to have a particular skin color. Or if you want something that's not anti-biblical, something that's maybe not written into a church constitution, we say we're going to be a welcoming environment for people who confess this faith and who make the same decisions on where to send their kids to school. I would argue that additions like these, things that are coming into the foundation, that, that at best some of them are just unwise, and then some of them are downright sinful and even satanic. This kind of addition to the foundation, things we're adding into is problematic, and it results in building walls that Jesus died to tear down. It's the old division of Jew and Gentile just brought to life again. God has torn that down. We don't want to add those things, those anti-biblical, non-biblical kind of things that we say work our way into our foundation. We say we will unite with these people, but not with these. On the other hand, there is a scenario where we are, where people are removing things from that foundation. And this one is actually probably the one that's more appealing to, I think, a lot of people because it's billed as love. It's actually billed as a way to gain even greater and more unity. Okay, so in, in 2019, just to think about a, a contemporary example of where I think this has happened, the United Methodist Church's Council of Bishops, they, were, uh, they came to the denomination and they asked them to adopt what they were calling the One Church Plan. And you can even hear in the name of that plan an appeal to unity. They're saying, we, we want to have one unified church but the plan was essentially a, a plan to try to keep the denomination as one big, one big denomination, but let individual churches make decisions on whether they would affirm LGBTQ clergy or they would perform those unions. And thankfully, in 2019, at least, it was voted down. It was voted down because the churches themselves saw that this was one church, something they said we're going to be one Let's have, we, this is something that we, they were going to allow an individual church to decide to make this, but they saw that this was not a path towards one church, but towards a true and false church. Again, I think scholar Clinton Arnold gets this right. People in the church today run the risk of diluting this vision for the church when they diminish the importance of a common faith as the foundation for unity. There can be a temptation to overlook essential differences in the core elements of the faith in a quest for simply getting along with one another. This leaves only, leads only to a veneer of unity, not a true unity in the way the Lord has intended it. This kind of addition or subtraction from the one faith, it may seem like a quick way to create unity. It's an appeal to say we can do this, but, but it's not rightly reflecting the things that we're founded on. The foundation that God has given us to base our churches on and our unity on. So that's like an organizational threat, a thing we should be aware of. But there are much more run-of-the-mill kind of enemies of unity that we would do well to think about. If you're, don't worry just about the organizational things. Think about the things that can creep in your own like Things like gossip. 
Proverbs 18.8 says this, the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. And our flesh gossip or whispering behind someone's back, it not only makes us feel good, like we have some information that we can give to someone else and show that we are in the know, it feels good to listen to that too. It goes down into the inner parts of our body and words that are carelessly used behind someone's back, words that maybe even intentionally are meant to hurt someone behind their back, that will rip a church asunder quickly. And Christians sometimes get even the bad reputation of this because we can baptize our gossip and call it a a prayer request. So we just need to be careful that we are not going about with our tongues and doing what James says, setting ablaze a fire in the forest of God's people that will tear us apart. You don't even have to use your tongue to oppose unity. Unity can be disturbed by long-held grudges as well. In his own encouragement towards holiness, Peter tells Christians, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers over a multitude of sins. Love for one another, it recognizes what love should do in in this church and any church that preaches this gospel. It should recognize that I'm, I'm a sinner and I live among sinners. And friends, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to do things that are hurtful and harmful to one another. And when that happens, I hope that the thing that happens quickly is that I go to you or you go to someone else and say, I've done wrong. I've sinned and I need your forgiveness. And how do you, how do you want your brothers and sisters to respond to that? You want them quickly to say, I forgive you. Praise God, we are, we are united in Christ. Love covers over a multitude of sins. But what happens if we're holding on to what has happened? If we're holding on to unforgiveness and holding it over people even for a long time, we're, we're hurting our unity and ultimately we're portraying a picture of God that is false. We worship a God who is good and forgiving, who is abounding and steadfast love to all who call upon him. Why would we want to paint a picture of him that is different than that? Grudges are things that can last for long times in churches and can tear apart just for decades even. And probably the granddaddy of all enemies, the root from which all these others flow, is pride. Pride. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he takes aim at pride in this way. He says, pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. If I am a proud man then as long as there is one man in the whole world more powerful or richer or cleverer than I, he is my rival and my enemy. Pride is competition, unhinged, and it will not tolerate anybody else who is enjoying the successes that it desires. And these enemies of unity can make life together in a church difficult. These enemies of unity can make life in church sometimes just downright miserable, if we're really honest. And I think that these, these things creep in and they can seem common in a church for a few reasons. But one, one of the reasons is that because I think the enemy knows just how precious the church is in God's sight. He knows exactly what the church is meant to be in the scope of redemptive history. God has died for his church. And he has said that he is uniting all things in Christ. At the end of history, we will together be united in Jesus. We will see that unity. Even with brothers and sisters for whom now we may may not see it here on earth. 
And if that is the case, that's the thing that's coming. And the picture of that coming unity is meant to be displayed here. It's meant to be displayed among a people who love the Lord and have committed to loving one another. And if we're meant to be the picture of that coming day, if we're meant to feel that and even enjoy that just as a taste, as a foretaste for that great joy that is coming, you can bet that the devil and all his minions will fight like crazy to make sure that we don't have that. We have arrayed against us enemies who are wanting to see Christ's church torn apart and who delight in that. And brothers and sisters in this room, do you have, have you seen these enemies of divine blood-bought unity sow division in your own life? And maybe even in this church. It is possible that you could be sitting in here and thinking about someone else who's in the room with us or who's on our membership directory. And if that is you, let me encourage you. Today is the day. Today is the day to be made right. To seek to live in unity with that brother or sister. You don't have to be best friends by the end of the sermon. By the end of the day, it may take time. But we want to be able to go to the Lord's table. And see what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. That this is, this is not just, we're, we're, we're looking back, but we're also looking around and saying, the meal that we share It's a symbol of the unity that we have in Christ. Can you do that? Can you pass that plate to the person who you have disunity with? We should fight against that. We should strive to be a kind of place where we see this unity demonstrated and visible even. And and here's here's kind of the last lie. Here's the last uh, the last thing. I think that maybe if you, even if you feel that right now, like I have somebody I need to go talk to, the last line of defense I think of Satan is to say, they need to come to me first. They're the ones who should be doing this. Fight that. Friends, you don't have to make peace because Christ has taken the first step. Christ has made peace. You follow. Initiate today to have relationships that are made right and reconciliation in His name. Friends, we have foes who are, arrayed, who are arrayed against us, who are just lined up, ready to see us fall, who do not want to see unity in God's church. But we should realize and remember that this battle is not one that is evenly matched. So the world, the flesh, the devil himself stand against the unity that we want to see in this church, in Christ's church. But God's power for us and who he is his and what he has given us overwhelms those odds. God and his desire for his people's union, he has not left us without his resources and his divine instruction. Which leads to point number three in the virtues of unity. Start back in chapter, uh, chapter four, verse one. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We're called to show humility and gentleness, even if it is towards people who you may find difficult. And humility is not necessarily thinking that you're the the lowest person, you're a worm. It's just thinking rightly about yourself. I am a sinner saved by grace. 
And it's say, being able to say, uh, if I see the speck in my brother's eye or my sister's eye, I should be wary that there may be a log sticking out of my own. And when I approach that other brother or sister, if, even if that's, if that's necessary, we do it with gentleness. With an attitude that is hoping to see reconciliation, not that is glorying and just saying, thank goodness I finally get to point out the things that I think is wrong in this person. No, it's, it's an approach that says, I want to humbly, gently be made right. Uh, if you use the Fighter Versus app or kind of a memory verse system to try to think through these, uh, it was just God's good providence. This week I was working on Romans twelve sixteen, And listen how these, these two parts kind of come together. The first sentence and then the next two sentences. Li- uh, Romans twelve sixteen: Live in harmony with one another. Great. Good. Have unity. How? Second part of that verse. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. We're pursuing unity with humility. Associating ourselves with others, even if we think that maybe they're lower than us. God calls us not just to humility and gentleness, but to patience, to persist in the commitments that we have made to one another, even when circumstances are difficult. I love this definition of patience from P.T. O'Brien. Patience is that long-suffering. That's a word we don't use very much, but it's really good. Long-suffering, which makes allowance for others' shortcomings and endures wrong rather than flying into a rage or desiring vengeance. You see somebody who does something wrong, maybe even in your own house, and instead of just flying off the handle and saying, I'm going to show them what's wrong and get my revenge now, we're able to say, I can endure this, I can be long-suffering, and I can bear this. Because Christ has called us to it. Because he is the ultimately patient one. We're called to bear with one another in love. And the word bear with, maybe that sounds kind of negative, right? It implies that there are people who aren't, you know, the, a blast to be around. But uh, if, if, there's, if you hear bear with one another in love, and maybe you think about somebody else in your head right now, the humbling truth is that somebody may have you in their head right now. We need to bear with somebody saying, I gotta bear with Ryan Adams. But it's not just that we're bear with, it's, finish that sentence. Bear with, go along with, encourage towards love. In love. It is not that we are just merely getting along. We are by all of our efforts striving to the best of our abilities to walk together in love, bearing with one another. And finally, we ought to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We should have a zealous desire to preserve our unity. We should fight with everything in us to maintain this. And importantly, I think Paul is very careful. I know Paul is very careful about the words that he uses here. In that little section, our call in regards to living in unity is to do what? It's to maintain to maintain unity, to keep it. And maintenance implies that something is already there. I, I, can't, I, have, I can't create a car. I can barely maintain a car, but I definitely can't maintain a car if I don't have one. Maintenance requires that you already have something. Paul is saying here that your job and my job, it is not to make peace. It is not to forge peace or create it. That has already been done. There's somebody who's already taken that job. 
Our job is to keep and maintain it. Look back up at Ephesians 2. Again, flip over just a few pages. Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. He, that is Jesus himself, is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Thereby killing the hostility. Brothers and sisters, you do not need to make peace with one another because Christ has already done that. Christ has already made it for you who are in him. We are not forging new territory. We're not creating bonds with our own hands. We are just merely walking and maintaining and keeping the peace that that Christ has made with his nail-pierced hands. And friend, if you are here today and you are not a Christian, we are so glad that you are here. We are glad that you have come to worship with us. And I imagine that many of you, you, you want peace. You want unity. Unity feels good. You want people who you can rally around and with. You want to be known and to know others. Some of you may even be here and you came to church despite everything in you telling you not to come because of even like past experiences that you may have had with church. The church can be a painful place where there's not unity, but backbiting and busybody. Whatever I, I hope, what my, my hope, what I have seen in this church, I hope that you would stick around long enough to see a display of unity displayed here at Philadelphia. I hope that we we're able to paint a portrait of, of what this unity looks like. But ultimately, we, we don't just want you to, to see that. And any unity we enjoy together is not something that we have done because we're just so great It's something we have done because we belong to Jesus. And ultimately the unity that we want you to have is with God's people through Christ. Not just here, not just see the love and the unity that we have here, but know that any unity we have comes because Jesus loved us first. And he died to purchase this for us. If you have questions about what that looks like, if you are curious what it looks like to have union with God, how to be forgiven of sins, how to walk with other brothers and sisters in Christ. I'd be happy to talk with you about that. Find another Christian here in this service. We would love to talk to you about this, how you can be made right with God and find a family. Find a family that you can belong to. Brothers and sisters, everything in this world, every minion of the devil, everything in our flesh that is not surrendered to Christ, it bucks against this call to unity. It wants to fight against this. And it is so easy to grow weary. I love what Shannon prayed earlier for moms. Just to grow weary in doing good. Even the the hard work of maintaining unity. It can be tiring. But remember. Remember that we are not doing something that God has not already purchased for us through his son. And even in these virtues. Even in the things that he's telling us to do. God is not calling us to go somewhere that our savior has not already gone himself. So before he called us to be patient and to bear with one another in love, you can just go read the Gospels and find Jesus patiently walking with the crowds and bearing with disciples who consistently doubt and turn away. Before we were ever called to be gentle, our Savior Jesus is the one who said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. If you think humility is hard for, for you, remind yourself you are not the first one to walk in humility. We're following a Savior who humbled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross, so that you and I could have this kind of unity. Friends, we, we are not doing this in our own strength. We're walking in the strength of the Lord and the Spirit who has already united us and called us to walk in Him. Our job now is to grab the hand of Jesus and to lock arms with other brothers and sisters in Christ and walk to heaven together. I want to close by praying that the Lord would just help us even do that now. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that through Christ you have made a people for yourself. And we pray, God, that in this church, that in Philadelphia Baptist Church and other churches around our city that preach the same gospel, that there would be a unity that points to what you have done and who you are. Help us, even with other brothers and sisters who believe the same gospel, to rejoice in our unity that we will have one day for eternity. And Lord, we pray, we ask that you would kill any enemy who is fighting against us loving and walking patiently with one another, even today. Help us to follow Christ. Would you bind us together in your love so that others may see and know Not just how great we are, but ultimately how good Jesus is. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we continue to worship together?